The History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week, June 28, 1992. I'm Kalen Jones. The crowd inside Portland's Veterans Memorial Coliseum has just witnessed a blowout. Yet, it's still buzzing. A basketball team has beaten another basketball team by 79 points. The final score, 136 to 57. That sounds like a sporting event most fans leave by halftime. Not one where they joyously cheer beyond the final whistle. This route marks the United States men's basketball team's first game at the 1992 Tournament of the Americas. Team USA's tune-up before they head to the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. Cuba is on the wrong end of the result, though its players strangely don't look too discouraged. Perhaps because they're on the court for one of the most important moments in basketball history. This is the world's official introduction to the Dream Team. Heading into the 1992 Summer Olympics, the United States men's basketball team has recruited several of the NBA's biggest stars, a collection of champions, future Hall of Famers, and even rivals to play together, on the same team, wearing the same jerseys. It's literally a dream team. And from the very first possession, it's obvious how special this group is. And in the white uniform, Magic Johnson controls the tip. Here's Larry Bird banking in, goes to the fadeaway. What happens next is history. We all knew it was going to be a uh, a circus. But when the Dream Team got together, you know, even then we saw how big it was going to be. But we still got to Barcelona. You couldn't get within two blocks of the hotel. You literally couldn't. There were thousands of people ringing the hotel. Today, the Dream Team, the first Olympic squad to feature NBA players, begins its march toward gold. Why, after decades of sending amateurs to the Olympics, did USA Basketball suddenly get the chance to spotlight top professionals? And how did the Dream Team's formation forever reshape basketball? How it's played and revered across the world. We're rooting for their Western Conference champion Trailblazers against the Chicago Bulls in the NBA Finals. Now they are unified in support of the United States Olympic team. What may well be the best basketball team ever assembled. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even if you're not familiar with the NBA, you've probably heard at least some of the names on the 1992 USA men's basketball team. Names like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, and of course, a 6'6 guard, Michael Jordan. 
If any collection of talent was worthy of an unforgettable and enduring nickname like the Dream Team, it was this one. I don't think it's the first time the two words were put together in the history of human civilization, but nevertheless, I was lucky and I will accept the fact that I had some small part of what became the, you know, one of the great phenomenons of marketing in the history of sports. That's Jack McCallum, senior writer for Sports Illustrated from 1981 to 2009 and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Dream Team, how Michael, Magic, Larry, Charles, and the greatest team of all time conquered the world and changed the game of basketball forever. They were at the perfect age. They had this blend of experience and youth. And the three, four core guys that you needed were at the absolute peak of their career. Michael, Scotty, Charles. Absolute peak of their career. The Dream Team consisted of 12 players, 11 of whom are now in the Basketball Hall of Fame. They collected a combined 106 All-Star appearances and 22 championship rings. Together, they would go on to win their eight Olympic contests in Barcelona by an average margin of 43 points. But before we can discuss their romp to the gold in Barcelona, let's go back a few years. To 1972, the Summer Olympics in Munich, Germany. That year, the United States men's basketball team faced the USSR in the gold medal game. Up to that point, Team USA had won every Olympic men's basketball gold since the event was introduced in 1936. And they'd done it not with a team of seasoned professionals, but with amateurs. College kids. Olympic basketball or international basketball in general, we didn't pay that much attention to it. So all we knew about international basketball or all we thought about much was that the Olympics are coming up, we're going to win. That's kind of the way that it was. We had always won. Heading into the 1972 Summer Olympics in Munich, the U.S. had no reason to believe otherwise. That team, led by future four-time NBA All-Star Doug Collins, coasts through the tournament. Then, they meet the Soviet Union, their Cold War rivals, in the gold medal final. We vaguely knew that the Soviets had a good team, that they were very physically skilled. They were a very physical, disciplined team. I don't know whether any of your listeners will remember this. They replayed the ending two different times. A Russian official and Hank Ivor were yelling at each other, and Bedlam has taken over here at the basketball hall. The United States leads now 50-49. There's one second showing on the clock, but now, now you have been totally confused. They're, they're changing the clock is what they're doing. They're going back to three seconds is what the PA announcer said. Twice, Team USA thinks they've won. Referees have to clear the court so Russia can inbound the ball for a third time. A full court pass is completed to Alexander Belov, who catches the ball underneath the basket then lays it up as two Americans fall to the floor near him. It's a long story as to what the Olympic rules were. So what we thought then was, oh, it was an anomaly, kind of got cheated, but it was a very, very, very controversial ending. The Soviets win 51-50. to 50. 
Team USA is incensed by what they feel is an unfair and biased result. They refuse to stand on the podium to receive their silver medals. In fact, those medals continue to be unclaimed to this day, half a century later. They're not picking them up. Mike Bantam was a player on that team, great player, St. Joe's forward. Mike became kind of the face of that team, along with Doug Collins. If you ask either of them, no, we are not picking up our silver medals. We were the gold medalists. We won the gold medal. That's how they looked at it. Four years later, in 1976, Team USA rights the ship winning the Olympic men's basketball gold over Yugoslavia, who defeated the USSR in the semifinals. You might be thinking, the United States finally gets their revenge against Russia in 1980 then, right? Not exactly. The United States, along with 64 other countries, boycott the 1980 games in Moscow in protest of Russia's invasion of Afghanistan the previous year. So, four more years later, at the 1984 Olympics, Featuring a team of college stars, including future dream teamers Chris Mullen, Patrick Ewing, and University of North Carolina junior Michael Jordan, Team USA still doesn't get a chance to avenge its 1972 defeat versus Russia. The U.S. does win gold, beating Spain by 31 in the championship. But Russia doesn't even participate in the 84 tournament because it's protesting the Los Angeles-based games. This all leads to 1988. Once again, the United States has put together an incredible team of young amateur talent. Future NBA stars such as David Robinson, Danny Manning, and Dan Marley fill out the roster. But something else was happening on the international stage. By 1988, I had taken a summer trip with the uh, Atlanta Hawks over to Russia which was defined as kind of a, you know, goodwill tour. It wasn't that. Uh, Ted Turner was trying to pluck two of uh, Russia's great players, Soviet Union great players, uh, Sharunas Marshallotis and Alexander Volkov being two of them. So by then, we had sort of begun to realize that there was this other world out there, that international basketball was really good. 1988 was a watershed But people, if you had looked quickly, you could have seen it coming. Team USA loses to the Soviet Union 82-76 in the semifinals in 1988, earning a disappointing bronze medal. We we immediately, being Americans, which we do very well, we immediately started to rationalize. Oh, hell, we would have beat them uh, if we had our best guys. They're only college kids. So we kind of did this very much of a switcheroo. At the next Olympics, the United States do indeed send their best guys. In 1989, FIBA, basketball's international governing body, decides that for the first time, paid professionals are allowed to play in the Olympics. FIBA Secretary General Boris Stankovich believes that for the game to grow, the Olympics must feature the best players. The chance emerges for the United States to remind the world of its unparalleled basketball talent. I went back and read some of the articles that I had written at that time, and it was a definite motivator for the players. That's Ken Rosenthal, senior writer for The Athletic. He covered the Dream Team in Barcelona for the Baltimore Sun in 1992. There was a lot of 
talk about getting back to preeminence in basketball, which is what the United States had had for so many years. And I am quite certain that that is why the Dream Team came together. The door is open for Dream Team coach Chuck Daly to put together the greatest collection of basketball talent ever to share one locker room. There are numerous options to consider. Young up-and-comers, aging superstars, but there's someone that they target before anyone else. Michael. Back then, he, he was the biggest star. There's no question. And he's the one who had the big mural on the apartment building. Here's Michael thinking. We're going to win this. Hey, we're going to win the gold medal. B, I'm going to give up my summer when all I do is basically play golf and do whatever the hell I want to. C, I want this to be a good time. D, I don't need the marketing money in the way that everybody... I, I don't need this. E, I've already played Olympic team. I have a gold medal. It would take some convincing to get Jordan to play. But for other stars, such as Magic Johnson, an Olympic gold medal is still on their career bucket list. Magic's gone. Hell, man, I didn't get a chance to play for the gold medal. You know, 1980, we boycotted... You know, when I might have tried out for the Olympic team, we didn't play then. 84, I'm already in the league. I've already won a championship. Magic Johnson, a beloved teammate and a fan favorite, is the first player to accept the official invite from the Olympic Selection Committee. Despite announcing his retirement from the NBA after contracting HIV in November 1991, Magic remains committed to playing in the 92 Olympics. And with Magic pledging to the Olympic squad... Coach Chuck Daly, along with his assistants Mike Krzyzewski of Duke University and P.J. Carlissimo of Seton Hall, could focus on constructing the rest of the roster, with Magic as an influential, persuasive piece. There's just one problem. Michael was just kind of looking at this from a different perspective, and he did want to find out who the other guys on the team was, and no matter what he says, he did not want to play with Isaiah Thomas, Isaiah Thomas is considered one of the top point guards in the world, a smart and savvy veteran with a tremendous playoff resume. He might be toward the tail end of his prime, but he had won back-to-back titles as the best player on the Bad Boys Detroit Pistons in 1989 and 1990, beating Jordan's Bulls in the playoffs both times along the way. The Detroit-Chicago rivalry was intense. And when the Bulls got over the hump, and finally beat the Pistons in 1991, Isaiah Thomas and his teammates just walked off the court. Time runs down. Pistons wasting no time in getting out of here. Now a timeout was called. They left the bench, although there's 7 and 9, 10 seconds remaining. The Pistons just left. That's a three-pointer. Without explicitly saying it, Jordan conveys that if Thomas makes the team, he won't play. Even today, Jordan has never publicly admitted that he didn't want Thomas on the team or that he intentionally froze Thomas out, as is later reported. Regardless, with Jordan on board and the Isaiah Thomas drama now behind them, Team USA looks to fill out the rest of its roster. There's Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan's teammate in Chicago, one of the most athletic lockdown defenders in the league, Carl Malone and John Stockton, who led the Utah Jazz to two NBA Finals over the course of an unprecedented 18 seasons as teammates. Two absolutely dominant big men in David Robinson and Patrick Ewing, who played contrasting styles 
that can anchor any defense and devastate any opponent. Chris Mullen, a feared perimeter sharpshooter. Charles Barkley, or Sir Charles, a freight train who combines speed and power who would lead the Dream Team in scoring. There's also Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, just the two greatest players of the previous decade often credited with saving the NBA. This goes well beyond a simple all-star team. These are the best of the best of the best. We know Bird and Jordan and Magic as legends now, but they were legends then. They were the biggest stars in the game in a league that had been resurgent because of what they and others had accomplished. So to see them on the same team, it was just breathtaking even to think about. It's a mind-blowing thought even now to think about it. Careful listeners might note that we've only mentioned 10 out of the 12 players on the Dream Team so far. Even though the Olympic team is entering this new world of pro basketball players, the U.S. Selection Committee still wants to honor the decades-old legacy of college players. We were going to have eight pro players and four college players. And then they got these names on the board and we're going, wait a minute, Patrick Ewing's not even considered? You know, David Robinson's not, you know, never mind James Worthy, Dominique Wilkins, Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars. So that the reason for the delay was partly trying to figure out whether they were going to take two college kids or one. And they ended up saying, uh, no, we're going to take only one. And the person who really got screwed in that was Clyde. On May 11, 1992, Clyde the Glide Drexler, one of the smoothest high-flying guards of his time, is the final NBA player chosen for the Dream Team. His credentials suggest he should have been chosen way earlier, though. That season, Drexler finishes second in NBA MVP voting, behind Michael Jordan, while also leading his Portland Trailblazers to the NBA Finals, where they lose to Jordan's Bulls in six games. Along with Drexler, the committee decides on the college player who will head to Europe with NBA mega-celebrities, Duke star Christian Leitner. They took Christian Leitner over Shaquille O'Neal, It sounds ridiculous, but you have to go back and get it in the context of the moment. Christian Leitner is one of the great college players there there ever was. I mean, and everybody who knew the game looked at him and went, he's not going to be as good in the pros, but he's an amazing college player. The Dream Team roster has officially been set. But before it can begin its path to domination, the Dream Team suffers a shocking defeat. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On June 24th, 1992, the Dream Team practices together for the first time inside the main gym at UC San Diego in La Jolla. Naturally, most think this super team will never be beaten. And they never are, at least not in public. The Dream Team looks timid during its first ever practice together. The NBA's most dominant stars are still trying to get a feel for how to play with each other. At the end of the practice session, a squad of college stars takes the court to duel with the Dream Team, the first of a series of tune-up scrimmages ahead of international play. This team features some of the best American college players, Names like Penny Hardaway, Grant Hill, Bobby Hurley, and Chris Webber. You have to understand, they would have been the Olympic team. So we are not only want to play our best to show off, but, you know, this was, they, these guys took it from us, you know? So they were ready to play. The Dream Team's energy just isn't there. They misfire passes, brick shots, and the college kids are sharp. Bobby Hurley pushes the pace, collapsing the Dream Team defense at will. Chris Webber cuts through the paint, flying for dunks above the rim. The Dream Team loses. Coach Daly has the final score removed from the scoreboard before the media enters the gym following practice that day. We came in afterward, and there was obviously a kind of droopiness to the Dream Team. The next day, they scrimmaged the collegiate squad again and beat them handily. It said they won by 40. Barkley definitely said he laughed it off, uh, that we knew that, uh, you know, his, his thing was we beat them like they stole something. The Dream Team is now awake, ready to take on the world. But because the U.S. claimed bronze at the 88 Olympics, the Dream Team still needs to qualify for the 92 games. So before heading to Barcelona, they fly up to Portland to compete in the Tournament of the Americas. The qualifying tournament, oddly, was supposed to be in Argentina or someplace. And the NBA said, Michael Jordan's not going to freaking Argentina to qualify in July. So the NBA bought the rights to the tournament for like $6 million, held it in Portland. Portland, Oregon, home of Clyde Drexler's Trailblazers. When the team is introduced for their first game against Cuba, it's the home crowd's beloved Drexler, not Magic, not Larry, not even Michael Jordan, who gets the biggest ovation. Now, the fans are one thing. They're supposed to ooh and ah at the sight of these titans of the game playing together. A little more surprising is that the Cuban national team seems equally excited. They run out. Everybody's looking, watching, and Cuba stops. They stop warming up. <laughs> they stop. They stopped warming up. Some of them went and got cameras. You know, the whole place just kind of stopped somewhere on everybody's mantle who played in the 1992 qualifying tournament. There's a picture of them with Michael, Magic, Larry, or somebody that they liked. That was worth the beating. Well, it was unbelievable to see. And I do remember feeling a lot of excitement in the crowd, among the media, 
every one of us. And I mean, you know, <laughs> it was met against boys, but not literally, but in terms of basketball skill and experience and all of that. The Dream Team beats Cuba 136 to 57. They go on to win the Tournament of the Americas easily, defeating Venezuela in the finals by a score of 127 to 80. The team is officially gelling. They head to Monte Carlo for training camp. The practices have a renewed intensity and sense of purpose. They have a job to do. But going against each other proves to be the most serious competition they'll face. Things are particularly chippy between Magic and Jordan. Magic is reluctant to give way to Jordan, who asserts himself as the NBA's ruler. The two collide in what's mythically described as the greatest scrimmage of all time. In white, Jordan's team. Pippen, Ewing, Malone, and Bird. In blue, Magic's team. Barkley, Robinson, Mullen, Leitner. Stockton and Drexler are nursing injuries. Coach Daly only occasionally intervenes as the two teams go at it for 40 minutes inside a humid French gym. An Italian gentleman referees, but Jordan and Magic run the show, guarding each other while also trading trash talk. We ain't in Chicago Stadium anymore, Magic yells as his team goes up 19-13. Then Jordan's team launches an 8-0 run to take its first lead. Pippen flies around on both sides of the ball, while Malone and Ewing keep getting to the basket. Jordan's team never looks back, winning 40-36. At the end of the scrimmage, Jordan grabs a cup of Gatorade and taunts the losers by singing part of his Be Like Mike commercial. Sometimes I dream that he is me. Got to see that's how I dream to be. Be like Mike. Oh, be Monte Carlo plays a huge part in fostering the team's camaraderie. They were really looking at this like summer camp, that they all sort of enjoyed this kind of relating to each other because they did not grow up in the AAU culture. Today, NBA players grow up playing with and against each other on elite travel teams in the Amateur Athletic Union, or AAU, often before they even get to middle school. Today's players also connect through social media, but the formation of the Dream Team? This is something new. When they were together, it seemed like they were one. It did not seem like any of those rivalries or tensions or jealousies came into play. And that was the coolest part of it. The biggest stars in the NBA just hanging out together, becoming friends, meeting each other's families, There's a small room at the hotel where the players bond together over beers, cards, stories, ping pong, and trash talk. The team leaves Monte Carlo closer than ever before. Finally, it's time to head to Barcelona. The team stays at a nearby hotel to avoid disrupting the Olympic Village. A couple days before the games began, I said to uh, one of my NBA friends, hey, let's go over to the team hotel. You know, maybe we'll run into somebody to have a uh, drink with, have a beer with. Uh, maybe Carl Malone, maybe Charles. It was some of the easy guys to get with. You couldn't get within two blocks of the hotel. You literally couldn't. There were thousands of people ringing the hotel. 
players can't leave their hotel without getting swarmed by crowds of fans. They need to be escorted by police anywhere they go. McCallum mentions in his book that the local police had snipers on the roof of their hotel to protect the players from the throngs of fans. The games themselves are not quite an afterthought, but not really a source of drama either. The night before their first game against Angola, Charles Barkley remarks at a press conference. I don't know anything about Angola, but Angola's in trouble. The Dream Team cruises through the Olympics, outscoring their opponents by a combined score of 938 to 588. Even in the gold medal game, they beat Croatia by 32. That Croatia team, incidentally, is led by Tony Kukoc, who later joins up with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen in Chicago to help the Bulls win three titles from 1996 to 1998. On the court, the world is overmatched, plain and simple. There has never been a collection of players so talented, so athletic, so fast, so dominant in the Olympics. The world was changing. We were learning more about it. We were seeing that there were polished players, particularly in Lithuania and Croatia and the Soviet states. Yes, we're going to get our butts kicked by 60 points. And maybe the next Olympics, it's 40 points. And maybe the next Olympics, it's 10 points. And that's pretty much exactly what happens. The 1996 U.S. men's basketball team, which some, namely Shaquille O'Neal, would have you believe was actually the superior team, dominates the Olympics again. How could they not, with veteran dream teamers being joined by a new generation of superstars, including Shaq, Reggie Miller, Gary Payton, and Hakeem Olajuwon? By 2000, Team USA just can't field the same level of talent. Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, Allen Iverson, all NBA players in their prime, are among the stars who turned down the Olympics for various reasons. That, combined with the growing talent around the globe, leads to some very close shaves in Sydney, Australia, including a two-point nail-biter victory over Lithuania in the semis. Then, in 2004, the previously unthinkable happens. Team USA and its All-NBA roster loses. Argentina beats the Americans 89-81 in the semifinals of the Athens Games. We got our ass kicked in Athens. It was terrible. I covered those games. It was the worst experience. And even cynical journalists like myself went, the United States got to do better than this. That the rest of the world was able to close such a massive talent gap in just 12 years is a nod to how influential the Dream Team really was. They inspired players around the world to hone their game. I talked to uh, Nowitzki and uh, Ginobili, some other people who were watching this. And so if you're a player, 10, 11, 12 years old, but you know you want to be a player, you're not watching this and seeing, oh my God, Jordan's just so much better than this guy. Why the hell are we even, why are we bothering? But, you know, Nowitzki, Ginobili, Tony Parker, Haydu Turkolo in Turkey, they're looking at this differently. They were going, oh, wait a minute, this is, we do this in our club team. We pass and screen away. We're doing the same things. They're just doing it at a level, you know, a hundred times better than us. And, you know, we keep on practicing and it's not going to be a hundred times anymore. We're going to be equals. Basketball today is a truly global sport. 
Last season, the NBA had 109 international players from 39 countries. The last four MVPs were won by two international players, Nikola Jokic of Serbia and Giannis Antetokounmpo of Greece. China alone has over 500 million fans who watch NBA games. The NBA's Basketball Without Borders initiative, started in 2001, has reached more than 3,700 players from 133 different countries. The Dream Team was integral in the game exploding on an intercontinental scale. I think the biggest impact is what they gave the game internationally, which when you think about it, it's, is is really what it's supposed to be about, that it wasn't supposed to be about Charles or Patrick getting more, uh, you know, marketing dollars in Spain. It's supposed to be about what you give back. That's kind of the Olympic ideal. And I don't think anybody thought that then, <laughs> but I think that's ultimately what the uh, exclamation point is on the Dream Team experience. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, sportspod at history.com. We love to hear from our fans and non-fans too. Special thanks to our guests, Jack McCallum, author of Dream Team, and Ken Rosenthal, senior writer of The Athletic. This episode was produced by David Ingberg. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by Podglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. 